Why are we reforming? If you are new or visiting with us this morning, you are brand new to who we are, this church. I want to welcome you. My name is Russ. I get to serve as one of our elders. And you've come to a church that, for want for a better term, our brand name is Reforming. You might have wondered why is that. Maybe you haven't. But people have over time wondered, why are we reforming? Today, it's our 10th birthday. So 10 years ago, on the 3rd of February, a Sunday, at 5pm, we started as a church with about 10 people in a funeral chapel. Great place to preach the gospel is where there are caskets behind you. And we had several location changes and by God's grace we're here in a building that we get to call ours. All of this is by God's grace. We celebrate God's grace. If you come this evening, which I do encourage you to do so, lots of other people are coming as well. We're going to hear stories of God's grace. Why are we reforming? Why are we reforming? We're reforming for a few reasons, but I want to tell you about one, a story about one in a moment. But firstly, we're reforming because theologically we're reformed. Now, you might not know what that means. And I didn't grow up in a Reformed church or know what that even means. But it means that we believe God is the one who gives all grace. Therefore, he gets all the glory, basically. There's lots of other things part of that. But basically, we believe truly in a big God. Secondly, historically, yes, we're Reformed, we're part of the Presbyterian Church of Australia, all those sorts of things. But why Reforming? Because if you go to other Presbyterian churches, some Presbyterian churches have strange names. Not strange because you don't understand the name, but like, why is it? So, so our mother churches, it's a great church called St. John's, but people often ask, who's John? And why is it his church? And do you have to be kind of all John? And seriously, people like, why, why is there St. Andrews and why is there St. Cuthbert? So whoever else it is, why are we not St. Someone? Why are we reforming? Well, we started out, as we're thinking about and planning and praying towards planning a church in East Bendigo, we started thinking, what is it going to be distinctive about us? Not that we're better or different, that distinctive and unique and special people, but if we're going to explain the gospel and explain how the gospel saves and gathers a people, a church, what is it about that that we could name it and call it? And so we said with a kind of a hat tip, I guess we could talk about reformed and all those sorts of things, but here's where it really came crashing to earth for me. In the year we were thinking about this, it was 2012, before we started, I had a ministry apprentice, a ministry trainee, and I was training him to preach the gospel, and I was on the campus ministry, and he was speaking evangelistically. He was in a mission event, speaking the gospel to a whole bunch of people in the room who did not yet know Jesus, at least not the real Jesus. And I was sitting in the back, second row. I remember the moment. You know how you have memories stick in your mind. I remember where I was seated. I remember the heads in front of me. And I remember the three young men behind me. Because as Joel was preaching the gospel, those three were talking. And they were muttering and saying all sorts of things about what Joel was saying and, and, you know, talking about what he was wearing and, you know, lots of jokes they were kind of making. It was kind of like being in the cricket and they were sledging as Joel was at bat. When Joel finished, I thought, look, I'm going to try and say hello. It's just nice to do so, isn't it? 
because there was just me in the second row, them and a group of people in front. So I turned around and I said, hi, my name is Russ. And they immediately, the one who seemed to be the leader of the three, the spokesperson, said, I bet you're one of those Christians, aren't you? I said, well, good guess. Well done. And he said, yeah, I worked you out. He says, I reckon you're one of those Christians because I can tell you're one of those self-righteous so-and-sos who think you're better than us because you're religious and all that kind of thing that goes with it. Now, what I saw in this young man was a whole lot of perhaps history that I did not yet know, context that I could not see, and all sorts of reasons why he would say that straight out the gate when he didn't know me at all. And let me tell you, friends, it's tempting in that moment, isn't it? With all the fibres you've been, they start gearing up, like, oh, okay, it's on, battle. And you start getting ready for who's going to be right. And you know what? It was only by God's grace, not me, it was supernatural by God's grace, of all the gospel that had been preached to me, all the songs that I've sung about men of sorrows, all the remembrance and repentance and rejoicing in Jesus and going, you know what? You're right. I think sometimes in Christian circles, in churches, we do have, sadly, an air of self-righteousness. Like we're better. Like we we are so-and-so sometimes. I think sometimes that's projected, even if we don't mean to. So if we think, you know, our church is fine as it is, and we don't want those kind of people here, because we're kind of full here. It's big enough as it is. That kind of response to the world that we're okay without any more new people says, because we're, we're better, and whatever it is that happened to this young man, and only by God's grace, I said, you know what, if you've met Christians like that, and it's possible, in fact, I know, I let me confess, I have been like that in my life, we're all only one step away from self-righteousness. I'm sorry, because let me tell you about me, if you come along to the church I go to, and at that time it was St. John's, our mother church, you meet kind of bunch of people there that if we're honest and I hope we are let me be honest I have got a lot of mess in my life things I have shame about things I would not want talked about from the front that maybe you would not want to be my friend if you knew because the reality is I am not be able to bring any righteousness or, or better than you kind of a big deal attitude to this conversation I said the reason I'm a Christian is I really need Jesus Christ. Like I'm breathing. In that moment, went home and talked to our team and I said, let's call our church Reforming. Reformed theology, big God, but we are reforming by God's grace. We are, it's, like, it's like God has taken us out of the dust of our own sin and shame, and he's reforming us into the people of God, into the image of his son. That's why we are reforming. Because if you come here, and you have a morning tea conversation, and by the way, morning teas around here, I'm not sure if you noticed, they go to about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Last week, I didn't leave till 5.30. It was church lunch. But you're welcome to stay and talk, and let's be honest, friends. Let's, like we hear testimonies this morning, let's be honest, we are from, you come and meet messed up people, especially and including the minister. That's us. 
I think it should be every church, but that's my personal opinion. Is that what do you call it, POV these days? I'm not cool with the kids. <laughs> my point of view is that I think that, that's us. We are reforming because that's who we are. We're reforming, you know, it's, it's, it's where... There's a phrase in the Reformation, Semper Reformanda, et ecclesia. I mean, don't worry about the rest of it, but Semper Reformanda. So if you know everything like um, Latin, I don't know. I didn't learn Latin. Head, you know, cards on the table, but, but you know, if you heard of the US Marines, Semper Fidelis, Semper is always, always faithful. Semper, Semper Reformanda in the Reformation was a phrase that came out to say that the church reformed is always reforming. It is always being reformed by God's grace. We don't change his gospel, we don't change his word, his word changes us. And so we are reforming. This is the heartbeat of our community, which means. We are going to hear stories this year of testimonies to God's grace. And last week in John 11, we saw a big one that affects what we see in John 12. See, last week in John 11, what happened, of course, you've got a little family, two sisters and a brother. We don't know a lot about their circumstances, but for some reason, they're living together. It does seem like, and you can read articles on this. It seems like perhaps the sisters are looking after Lazarus, but somehow he's, he's ill. He dies. He's four days dead. And what does Jesus do? He comes along and raises him to life. No one's done that. Not even Elijah or Elisha, who in the past someone died, but they raise him in the moment. No, he's four days dead and they're worried about his decaying and they, he raises a man dead four days. Which brings us to John 12, verse 1. It's dinner time. Have a look there. John 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Because they've seen Lazarus raised from the dead, they said, Hey, Jesus, come back to Bethany, come back to town, and they have dinner. Now, I want you to notice something, the timing of this event. Notice verse 1, six days before Passover. See, in the Synoptic Gospels, Synoptic's like Synchromesh Gearbox. So if you know, well, maybe you don't. Like, Synoptic uh, synced, uh, there, there's a better illustration, your phone, right? Your phone syncs with something, right? Bluetooth. Now I'm talking to the younger generation. You're all like, ah, oh, gotcha, totally. In the syncing Gospels, that are very similar, so Matthew, Mark and Luke, right? I want you to notice when Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem and to the cross, right? it's, it's quite a long episode and things happen along the way. In John's Gospel, this is only a week away. We're in the middle of John's Gospel. Second half, the whole second half is a week away from the cross and the whole thing is a lot of dialogue, monologue from Jesus with his disciples. It's the last days of his earthly life and his ministry in this moment, and he's talking about heavy things. Sometimes over dinner. So imagine, you know, do you talk about politics and, and death at dinner? Well, Jesus does. But here at dinner, we see here this special dinner, six days before Passover, it's a celebration of Lazarus being raised to life. We see Martha is serving. Isn't that so classic, Martha? Martha's always serving. If you know Martha from the Gospels, She's serving. Lazarus is there. Mary's there. And Lazarus is there. We see that 
This, this dinner conversation would be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? Can you imagine a dinner conversation and Lazarus is there dipping into the hummus with you? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that kind of conversation? So, um, Lazarus, uh, how was your week? Uh, well, yeah, I kind of died. <laughs> but I'm alive! <laughs> it was pretty heavy to start with. I was feeling really ill. And then I died. But I'm alive. You're like, Pretty interesting, like, we had a working bee yesterday, we had quite a crowd here, it was really encouraging, and people asked, how was your week? That kind of conversation, how was your week, Lazarus? That would be a dinner kind of conversation that has never been had before. And here, because of that event, they're gathered for a feast. It's a celebration. Verse 2, they gave a dinner for Jesus because of that event. And then we see at dinner, Lazarus' other sister comes, Mary, and she does something extraordinary. See what she does? Now, this is a famous scene, isn't it? And in the Gospels, there's, there's different women doing similar things. So it's not always the same person, but here, here's Mary, and, and she takes, and we can work out what Judas says in a moment, she takes, he does the calculation for us, right? She takes half a litre of perfume oil, and Judah says, that's a year's wages. She takes a year's salary, your year's salary worth of perfume oil, and she doesn't just give Jesus a little spray, she empties the bottle. She empties the bottle on him. And then she anoints his feet and wipes his feet with her hair. Friends, in that culture, that would be humbling. But in any culture, that would be humbling. Would it not? Would it be humbling to, to be in that moment? So if I was to come at morning tea, if I was to come along and meet you and then start wetting your feet and washing your feet with my hair, do you think that would be awkward? I think it should be. You know, we, we talk about washing feet and kind of the equivalent here is we have a, our members are on a cleaning roster. So we, our equivalent of being humble and going low for others is we don't wash it. Well, we, we, we do clean the floor. But imagine if I was to get my hand and start rubbing on your feet. That would have to be awkward. Let alone a woman coming to Jesus and doing this. This is awkward and it's awkward beautiful. It is awkward and beautiful. Here is a beautiful moment. And it makes sense for the larger moment in the room. For everybody, everybody makes sense of this, except one person. Many in the room had just had their lives changed forever by Jesus. So I think for Lazarus, you know, he's just like chewing on his dip and crackers, like he's like, I was dead. I died. Not Taylor Swift, like I literally died. But like I actually died. Not I met someone famous, I kind of died. But I, I was dead. I was decaying four days dead. His life has been turned upside down. His life has been dramatically changed. But so have his sister's lives. The loss of someone is so painful. You know, the old age, our oh, time heals or wins. Not, no, it's hard. Their lives have been turned upside down, changed forever. The people around know this. Their lives have been changed. 
It makes sense what Mary's doing. Would you do anything else? Is there any other way to respond to Jesus with gratitude but to anoint him with perfume oil, spend a year's salary on him, give up everything, empty the bottle? It makes sense now. Except for Judas. Doesn't make sense for Judas. Because Judas is a self-righteous so-and-so. Judas is a bit indignant. Jesus said in John 11, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? And he raises Lazarus. Judas has just seen the glory of God in that moment. He's just seen the glory of God. Now, what does glory mean? We've said this before here. Glory means weightiness of importance. It's like the glory of kings and queens when they enter the room in all their splendor. Glory is a word reserved for God, for he's the one who is worth all the weight in glory. Glory is fame and renown. And glory is the one of devoted worth of giving everything to They've just seen the glory of God. And now they're having dinner with the glory of God. And because they are dear to Jesus and he loved them so, they devote their lives to him and give him glory. Because Jesus changed everything. It's a truly beautiful testimony to the glory of God. You could not escape this moment. The perfume we read fills the room. You could smell the glory of the moment. And yet, how is it that Judas responds the way he does? This is the tragic testimony of Judas Iscariot. Verse 4. We meet the most famous frenemy of Jesus. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Why not indeed? She should have given her year's salary to the poor. Doesn't that make sense? That's a better use of the money. Give it to the poor. Now we know, because John writes in verse 6, that's just a cover. You know, people, we're complex, right? But we think, we're so complex, we think we can cover sin. Like we, we do things and say things behind closed doors and we think, no one sees. And the Proverbs speak about this. God sees. God sees the heart of Judas Iscariot. He thinks, if I just talk about the poor, diversion tactic, I'm just going, oh yes, Judas, wow, we're very wise. Yes, you are always right, Judas. Always have the right thing to say. It's just fake. Like Jesus can see straight through him, but John who writes it can see straight through it. And they say, yes, he writes retrospectively, but look, you can see straight through that, can't you? You can see verse 6 is true. He doesn't care about the poor, but he's a thief. And having charge of the money bag, verse 6, he used to help himself to what was put into it. See, Judas is even on the treasury team, and yet he steals money for himself. This is a tragic trajectory. See, Judas' betrayal of Jesus under God's sovereign plan, Judas is responsible for his own sin. 
Judas is absolutely, you and I are responsible for your sin. And this is a tragic test trajectory. Why? Because such betrayal that Judas gives later of giving up Jesus, such betrayal, such rejection of Jesus doesn't just happen in a weak moment. It starts a way back when. It starts with the little decisions of selfishness, of rejection, of ignoring God's word. That's where it starts. For Judas, he wasn't just like in the moment, oh my goodness, I could make a lot of money if I just give Jesus up. I really don't want to, but oh, I'm torn. You know, I really need that new cloak. It wasn't that. Judas had decided earlier, I'm not really with Jesus, but I'll come along the way because I get some stuff out of it, but I'm not really keen on Jesus. He'd already decided that. The trajectory is tragic because his life and character is exposed in these moments all the way along. How do you know someone's real character? Watch them when they don't get what they want. Where do you see the real person? Look at their response when they don't get what they want. That's when you see the real person. Do you see grace and love? Or do you see anger and frustration and selfishness? That's Judas. He doesn't care for the poor. He doesn't get what he wants. Because Judas values money above Jesus. So Jesus says, verse 7, leave her alone. So that may she may keep it for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor with you, but you're not always have me. Now what is Jesus saying? He's quoting Deuteronomy 15 verse 11. What we read. For there will never cease to be poor in your land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. In other words, Jesus is quoting, you need to care for the poor. But he knows, Judas doesn't care for the poor. It's a cover, it's a fake, it's a ruse. And so Jesus says, Judas, in other words, Jesus is saying this, Judas, you've always had the poor. Don't see you taking your year's salary, Judas. You've always had the poor. And by the way, from what we know about Martha and Mary and Lazarus, how would their attitude to the poor go? Cover's blown, Judas. It's all a ruse. It's tragic, isn't it? Isn't it tragic that you could live your life in those moments, be they incremental or large, and make those decisions that you're just not going to actually be devoted to Jesus? You look like you will because it looks good for others. It might even look good for the church. Maybe you've, maybe you've con convinced the church that you're really for Jesus. Maybe you can even convince the world. Maybe you can convince three guys sitting in the back row in an evangelistic meeting that you're one of Jesus' group. But Jesus knows. And he does not want you to go down the tragic trajectory of Judas. Now instead, he wants you to see and have a life-changing testimony of who Jesus is. Look at verse 9. Verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, and not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews are going away and believing in Jesus. This is almost tragic. It's comical, but it's comical tragic, isn't it? It's like Shakespeare wrote it. 
Look at the life test. Look at the life-changing testimony of Jesus. You see this? Not only uh, is a whole crowd of Jews believing in Jesus because of Jesus, but they're, they're looking at Lazarus's testimony. We've seen your testimony. You've heard your testimony. We believe in Jesus too. And yet, the rulers of these people, the preachers, the priests, the ones who should be knowing their Bibles, what is their response? They have on their hands, in their time, in their place, the person the Old Testament promised, the one who can raise the dead, who can heal the sick, who tenderly cares for the poor, they've got him. They've got someone who can defeat death. And what do they want to do with him? Let's kill him. So you like having a, a, you know, you're in an emergency situation. Like your life, my life is actually an emergency situation. It really is. I know we don't feel it now, but really, 70, 90 years, however long you live, we're actually all in ED. Because one day we will die and we will flatline. And we have here the person who gives us eternal life. What are you going to do with him? I just want to kill him. Imagine you're a 70 years, 90 years, imagine you are an ED. Imagine you're an ED and the doctor comes along and says, hello, I'm Dr. Such and Such, which is a pretty cool name, wouldn't it? I'm Dr. Such and Such. And they say, and you go, I wreck, oh, I hit, you're the doctor. Go away. It's crazy. That's what they want to do. They want to send the healer away, the one who gives the life away. Kill him. And not only that, they want to kill Lazarus too, just to make sure. Can't deal with that going around town. I mean, he, I don't know if he still smells, but got to get rid of that testimony. Can you imagine that? Imagine their plans. Imagine they went through with it. All right, okay, guys, what we're going to do is this. Here's the game plan. Huddle up, huddle up. Lazarus, right. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to get to Jesus. We'll get to him in a moment. Put on the agenda, business arising. Lazarus, general business, number one. Let's kill him, all right? And someone goes and does it. Imagine how that goes. I killed Lazarus. Great. What? He's alive? What? He's done it again? Lazarus is dead. No, he's alive again. He's dead. Do you think you can plan and conspire and decide against the living God? Lazarus has had his life changed because the Lord is on his side. A cross-reference reading, Psalm 119, verse 6. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side, as my helper, I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. You hate me? What are you going to do? You're going to kill me? I've got the one here who gives life. Lazarus had his life changed because he had been brought from death to life. What is the reason John writes his gospel? It's our call to worship each week. It's the purpose statement of John. It's from John 20, verses 30, 31. Here it is. It's in your service sheet. But what is the reason John writes this book? He writes this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, because John is saying, in other words, you need the reforming library just to hold all that stuff. But, verse 31, but these are written so that... Notice this. It's not so the person over there who you think really needs this needs to believe. I'm glad they're there because they really need this because I'm... Yeah, I'm, I'm really feeling like I'm better than them. No, 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 no. So that you, so that me, I, may believe, and, and for what belief? Have life in his name. 
just like Lazarus. John 12, 11, because of Lazarus, because of his testimony, we heard Aaron and Katie's testimony. Imagine Lazarus giving his testimony. Because of that testimony, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Jesus has changed their life. And what do they do? They devote everything to him. A testimony is a story about someone else. It's Christ's story through your story. And this is your testimony if you believe in Jesus. If you can reflect and just think upon, and just take a moment. We, we're going to sing about it in a minute. We've sung three songs already. We've heard two Bible readings. We've prayed. We've heard God's word preached. We've had an hour and a few minutes of your week to reflect on your life and where you are and where you're going. And in that moment, if you just realize that Jesus has changed everything for you, then you would live a devoted life. Not a life that decides away from Jesus in every moment like Judas, but a devoted life that goes towards him, even in your misery, even in your sin, especially in your shame. Look at Mary. Jesus changed everything. Jesus changed everything so much so, Jesus changed the value of an expensive ointment. How did he do that? It became nothing compared to him. Could Jesus change everything for you today? Absolutely. In every way. We're all dead in our sin, aren't we? We all die like Lazarus. But here's what Mary gets. Here's what you and I need to get. I need to get this. And here's what Judas Iscariot never saw. Jesus knows your sin. He knows your mess. He's not like, you don't need to kind of, you don't confess your sins to him because like you're informing him, I'm, Jesus, I need to be honest with you. I did this, you know. Jesus is not going, what? What in the world? He knows your sin. He knows you. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe. And yet, as you confess your sin, what he's doing is actually all grace to you. He's letting you be honest. He's letting you confess it. And he's saying, I come to you. He mentions it here. He says, what is Mary giving the perfume for? She saved it for my burial. He's come to die for you. That's how bad your mess is and my mess Deserves death. Jesus says, I'm taking your place. I'm subbing in. So you can be saved. So I can be saved. Jesus is devoted and will, under God's purpose, die for sinners to give them new life and change everything forever. Our lives, we often try and dress up, don't we? It's tempting to do that even coming to church. Of all the places, this is not the place you have to dress up your life. It should never be that. This is the place where you get to come. You get to come and say, like the testimonies we've heard, this is me. Let me tell you about Jesus. Because when people hear that, like a crowd of Jews, it lights up their life. It changes their lives forever. Judas needed to see that. 
Many of our friends need to see that. Like, just look at Judas for a minute. What does Judas want? He wants the money. Judas, Judas can't see. Money can't raise you from the dead. Money can't give you life forever. Money can't talk to you and money doesn't listen to you. Money doesn't love you. Money, whatever it is for you that you could be tempted to go, mm, that instead of Jesus. Whatever, you could be tempted to kind of run away from Jesus and say, I'm going to run away and, and grab that, some consolation in that for a while. Maybe get away from Jesus like a Jonah. Whatever it is, none of those things died for your sin and rose for your hope. But Jesus did. And he was devoted to it. So that those who are dear to him, like you, can be with rejoicing devoted to him. If you reflect upon the good news of the gospel, you will want to break perfume bottles and empty them. Friends, isn't that our testimony reforming? That's us. We are reforming. We are that. That's our testimony. Over the next few weeks, we're going to hear more testimonies of people telling Christ's story through their story. As people become members or return to Bendigo and join again as members, we're going to hear stories of God's grace. This evening, we're going to hear stories of God's grace. Now, we can be like the crowd looking at Lazarus, and our response can be now, I daily want to go to dinner with Jesus. And that in part is church, isn't it? It's the Lord's Day. We, we weekly want to go to dinner with Jesus. And we have church lunch once a month, but today is a morning tea. And if you've been on morning tea reforming, it's kind of like lunch. We call it morning tea. We want to be here. We want to actually be that crowd that gathers around Jesus. And we want to share in celebration. We want to hear people's testimonies. And it may not be from the front here, but it may be ask someone. Ask someone, are you, are you, are you part of reforming? Yeah. Can I hear your story? Yeah. We gladly share our story, Christ's story through our story. How encouraging is that? But also, that is how God saves people. That's how he saves and gathers people, by hearing your story. You don't have to be trained as a bigger evangelist or whatever that thing is. You just need to tell people, here's how Jesus changes everything for me. Let's do that, friends. That's exciting. And as you do that, if you are seeing Jesus for the first time or the 72nd time and you realise you need to go to him, if you turn your eyes towards Jesus, perfume bottles, money, whatever it is, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray, friends, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're asking right now in this moment as we come to sing that we would do what John's gospel is written for, that we would believe this for various reasons and various things going on in our complex lives. We struggle with that, but help us to believe it and to be living like it's true, because it is. Help us not to be fake or hold the ruse or the lies or the, the veneer of we're okay without Jesus or we care about other things. To No, no, help us to live devoted lives to Jesus, our testimony of him who has changed everything for us. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news of Jesus. And now we sing and pray that we would, in our lives, turn our eyes upon him. Amen. Amen.